reading from Daniel 5, 13 through 31. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered, and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. 
and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty Father, uh, it is um, a remarkable thing to uh, hear the story of Jesus' suffering and death. What a mysterious story. Nobody anticipated uh, that turn of events. Nobody, nobody, nobody would have, would have um, told that story in advance. Nobody would have invented such a story of God becoming human and suffering to the point of death on a cross. And yet, uh, as we have been singing, we have joined uh, with 2,000 years worth of people who, are, who, who say um, that death is the source of my eternal life. What a bizarre thing to say. And yet, Father, we ask that right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make that un unexpected story to truly be the source of our life. Grant us to taste and see that truth. Uh, not just uh, see it or hear of it from afar, but to see it up close and to taste its sweetness and to see its beauty for us uh, and for our salvation. So will you do that now? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, and hopefully when you came in, I mean, it's Palm Sunday, so hopefully when you came in, you received a palm cross. We've got some bigger ones and some smaller ones. If you've got a smaller one, sorry, don't take it personal. Um, um, but uh, take them out for a second, um, because these are, these are odd objects uh, for a couple different reasons. Um, so first of all, they're palm leaves, okay? Um, and uh, 2,000 years ago, palm leaves were uh, symbols of power. Uh, they were symbols of kingship. They were symbols of political authority. So if you were at something like a political rally 2,000 years ago and your favorite candidate for king showed up, you, you would scream and yell and wave a palm branch, a little bit like we do today. You go to a political rally, like there are hats or something that you wear and things that you wave around, right? Well, that's what, a little bit what a palm branch was uh, 2,000 years ago. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem just days before his death, as we read at the beginning of the service, uh, that's exactly what everybody did. Everybody in Jerusalem, they waved palm branches and, and the crowds went wild. But these palm branches are bizarre because they are folded into the sign of the cross. And absolutely zero people, can you have absolutely zero? Anyway, nobody 2,000 years ago would have ever connected kingship and the cross. And the reason for that is that the cro crosses were just instruments of abject terror and torture and horror and suffering and death. In fact, if you were a uh, Roman citizen, uh, one, one of the leading uh, Roman uh, scholars at the time said, a Roman citizen should never even have to imagine crucifixion because it's, it's so horrific. And it wasn't even one of the uh, authorized meth methods of execution in the Jewish community either. It was reserved for the very, very worst type of criminal 
And so palm branches were symbols of authority and kingship, and crosses were, were symbols of absolute rejection and suffering, and the two never came together. In part because the idea, if somebody was supposed to be king and they ended up on a cross, that was just clear, uh, objective proof that, uh, that that was a phony king and a failed king. However, what I want to show you today is that part of what's new in Christianity, uh, part of what makes Christianity so remarkably unexpected at that time, is that Christianity, the story of Jesus, united kingship, universal authority, with sacrificial suffering, and that's why our palm crosses are shaped into a cross. So Christianity makes this big audacious claim that Jesus Christ has been given by God comprehensive authority, uh, that he's the rightful king over everything. And I know that sounds like an audacious thing to say, but just go with it for a minute. Because it gets even more audacious, because Christianity claims that Jesus is a comprehensive king, comprehensive authority, and that Jesus is king, not despite his suffering, but because of his suffering. Christianity claims that uh, Jesus' suffering qualified him to bear comprehensive authority. And so what I want to do today as we launch into Holy Week is I want to uh, flesh this out by, by two points, really, looking at two stories. I want to look first at a case study of a kind of king God rejects. That's going to be the Daniel story. And then we're going to switch and we're going to look at the suffering of Jesus and we're going to look at the kind of king that God endorses and why he's worthy of our deepest confidence, why Jesus is worthy of our trust even more than we trust ourselves. So first of all, let's uh, turn over to the Daniel reading, and I want to show you a case study of the kind of king God rejects. Um, we've been walking through Daniel over these last uh, many weeks, um, but uh, this reading that we're looking at now is an excerpt of a longer story, so let me set up the backstory. Um, we are 500 years, around 500 years before Jesus, and we are in the uh, kingdom of ancient Babylon. And this guy, Belshazzar, has just become king. And when the scene opens up, a little bit before our excerpt begins, when the scene opens up, we are uh, at Belshazzar's inaugural ball. So he's just become king. He throws a big store, a big uh, party. I mean, that's totally normal. Everybody throws a big party when they become king or president or whatever. And he invites uh, a thousand influencers, lords of the kingdom. He brings them all together. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to consolidate his power. Um, Think of it this way. Belshazzar, in throwing this massive party with a thousand people, lots of wine, everybody's, is he's trying to act like a king. He's trying to project the idea that he is presidential, so to speak. Um, that he's, he is as up to the task as his predecessor, a famous guy called Nebuchadnezzar. Because he wants everybody to follow him. Now, I'm cutting a long story very, very short, but the, what I want to show you is that right when this uh, inaugural ball is hopping, right as everybody's starting to get tipsy because there's a whole lot of wine, uh, Neb or, uh, Belshazzar sees the writing on the wall. You ever heard that phrase? It comes from this. In the middle of the party, he sees writing on the wall. I don't know how. 
but it's a riddle and it frightens him. I mean, it, it says his knees knock and he kind of loses control of his body and he's super scared. He just goes to pieces. And he asks all his uh, smartest advisors, hey, what does this riddle mean? Nobody knows. So he calls uh, a Jewish prophet called Daniel. And Daniel comes, and Daniel interprets the riddle, and basically Daniel says what the riddle means, Belshazzar, is that God, the God of Israel, the Most High God, has rejected you and your whole regime. He's rejected your kingship. Now, slow down with me for a second, because here's the thing about Belshazzar. Belshazzar is doing everything his constituents expect a new king to do. He's rich. He throws a big party. He parades out all of his wives and his concubines because that's what powerful men are supposed to do in that, in that context. Terrible. Uh, he courts the approval of his political base. He's doing everything that he's supposed to do in their expectations. And yet despite all that, Daniel gets up and he says, basically, he says, uh, Belshazzar, you may be the kind of king Babylon wants, uh, but the very same qualities that qualify you to be king in the eyes of the people of Babylon disqualify you from being king in the eyes of God Most High. Where do I get that from? Take, take a look at verse 22 towards the end of the reading. Bel, uh, Daniel looks at Belshazzar and he boldly says, he says, you have not humbled your heart, See that? And then verse 23, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Pause. That's the heart of the matter. Belshazzar has rejected humility, and he, Daniel says he's lifted up his heart against God. Now, we don't have time for all the details, but let me fill in just a little bit of backstory here. So Belshazzar uh, had witnessed something happened in the life of his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about this several weeks ago. Nebuchadnezzar was the great king of Babylon, and yet in the height of his power, he experienced temporary insanity. And through this season of uh, losing his mind, so to speak, he experienced this humbling that brought him to a place where he realized for the first time that he was not the final authority, that he didn't have all the power, and that rather the God of Israel, the God Most High, uh, had authority over and against him. And Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's predecessor, to some extent humbled himself and he was restored uh, to his right mind. And Daniel says, Belshazzar, you were there. You had a front seat to this. You witnessed the humility uh, and the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but Belshazzar rejected all of that. And instead, Belshazzar says, I'm going to go a different route. I am going to center myself. And what he did is he prioritized himself over and against God. He prioritized himself over and against others. He prioritized himself over and against everything. And he, showed, he demonstrated all that in a really crude way. Uh, go back to the story. Um, during the party... Belshazzar uh, brings out these treasures, they're called vessels in the reading, these treasures from the temple in Jerusalem. 
Because what had happened was when Babylon, many years before this, had invaded Israel, they had raided the temple and they'd taken the treasures out of the temple. Some of those included goblets for drinking things. And, uh, and, and Babylon had just kept them in storage, but they were kept in storage as, in, as a sign that Babylon was exerting uh, power over and against the God of Israel. Well, Belshazzar brings them out of storage and, and, and says, everybody get drunk using these vessels, using these treasures that are meant to belong to the God of Israel. And so as everybody is getting drunk using these, these cups and so forth, it's an image, on the one hand, of Belshazzar's self-indulgence, but it's more than that. It's an image of his self-exaltation over against the God of Israel. What Belshazzar does is he says this, God of Israel, I'm going to take what belongs to you, and I'm going to use it for me. Stop. Emmanuel. The Christian idea of sin is very often elusive to some of us. Like, what does it mean? Is it being naughty? Uh, that's what sin is. What do I mean? Sin is when you take something that really belongs to God and I use it for me the way I want so that I'm exerting my authority over and against God's authority. And the thing is, if there really is a God who has created everything, then in a deep way, he owns everything. He even owns me. And therefore, if I take what belongs to God, including me, my own self, maybe my own body, my own possessions, and I use them for me in a way that pushes against God, I'm not using them uh, as a steward for God's purpose, but I'm using them over and against God, I'm using them for me, against God, that's, that's sin. And that's what Belshazzar is doing here. He's a narcissistic, self-indulgent, self-serving king. And that's why he's not trustworthy. So you never want to trust anyone who centers self over, every, over and against everything. And you certainly don't want to trust somebody who centers self over and against everything. You certainly don't want to trust them with authority. The reason for that is that they will use their authority to exploit you if that's the quickest way to them getting what they want. And that's why the God of Israel crashes the party and tells Belshazzar that he's rejected as king and then by the end of the night God arranges his death and now everybody take a deep breath does that sound harsh it sounds harsh to me until I consider this the God of the Bible is consistently intolerant of evil. And a judge who tolerates crime is called corrupt. A God who tolerates evil is a devil. And the idea that God judges evil, even and especially at the places of highest power in our world, the idea that God judges evil even at the highest power of our world is one of the great sources of courage for anyone who has experienced oppression and evil or injustice. God's hostility to evil is part of the thing that certifies that he's good. But here's the really troubling thing. Belshazzar's self-exaltation and his pride over against God, his centering of self, 
was totally normal within his Babylonian context. But the thing that is troubling to me is that it's totally normal for me. Do you know what I mean? Um, do you ever center yourself? Is it just me? It got quiet all of a sudden. That was awkward. Um, don't we exalt ourselves over as our final authority? And, and we do that without even thinking about it. We, just, we have a deep assumption that I am the fundamental authority in my life, or at least I should be. Um, the trouble is we're at great risk of taking what ultimately belongs to God and using it for self. And I can hear somebody saying, well, come on, that's normal. Everybody does that. To which I respond, yes, it is normal. But it would, Belshazzar was normal in his context, but that didn't make it right. And if God opposes Belshazzar, then we must expect him to oppose us as well. And that must make us squirm. All right. So there's a king, case study of a king that uh, God rejects. Uh, it's normal behavior, but that doesn't make it right, and it doesn't mean that God affirms it. So it brings up the question, well, what kind of king does God endorse? And what kind of king should we trust? Now switch over to Jesus. And I want you to think about how Jesus is the opposite of Belshazzar. Turn back in your uh, service uh, order a few pages um, to uh, Philippians chapter 2. You can look at it on page 6 and 7. Uh, this is a poem from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and he's talking about Jesus. And he says this, he says, uh, although Jesus was in the form uh, and nature of God, so he's equal with God, he did not, Jesus, uh, Paul says, Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage, but rather he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in appearance as a human, and he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Now, stop right there, and can you see how Jesus is right there, obviously the opposite of Belshazzar? Belshazzar exalts himself, centers himself. Jesus, although he's equal with God, he's fully God, as he becomes human, he decenters himself and he humbles himself. He sets aside some of his own rights. He humbles himself voluntarily, and he surrenders himself completely uh, to his father. Belshazzar accorded and needed desperately the crowd's approval, right? He, he was always uh, uh, angling towards his base. But Jesus is willing to be rejected by his base. He's willing to be rejected by the crowd. The same crowd that says, Hosanna, when he comes into the, um, to Jerusalem and is waving the palm branches and is like, hey man, we're on your side politically. That same crowd later on uh, rejects him and calls for his crucifixion. And Jesus uh, was willing to be rejected by the crowd. He became obedient to God to the point of death. And one of the many things that that means is it means that Jesus lived not for the approval of those around him, but he lived for the, the approval of God. He's decentering self, he's recentering God, his Father, and his Father's will all the time. And that, 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 that the fact that he didn't need the approval of the crowd freed him to live justly whatever the cost. Can you see that? 
Belshazzar lived for his own pleasure. But Jesus wasn't afraid to suffer. And because he did not live for pleasure, it's not that pleasure is bad, but Jesus did, wasn't uh, uh, addicted to it, he could sacrifice himself in the service of other people. But what I'm trying to show you is the self-surrender of Jesus Christ. And according to Philippians, it was that total self-surrender, that sacrifice, that indicated to God the Father that Jesus was finally the human ruler, human leader that God himself could trust. If you look over at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Therefore, because, Jesus, uh, because of his self-surrender, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's almost like this. It's as if God the Father uh, looked at Jesus' surrender. He looked at Jesus' self-sacrifice and his obedience and his humility and his decentering of self and recentering of the Father's will. He looked at all of that and he said he saw something that he had never seen in any other human leader. It's as if all through the history of the world, ever since the beginning of the story of the scriptures, it was as if God had been looking for a human leader he could trust. And time and again, even the best ones were a little too much like Belshazzar and they couldn't really gain God's full confidence and trust. But then he, found, he looked at Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, become human. And when he looked at Jesus Christ, he saw the perfect reflection of his own character. And God the Father said, there is the leader that I can trust. And God entrusted to Jesus comprehensive authority over all. He gave him the name that is above every name. And it, that's not despite Jesus' suffering, it's because of Jesus' suffering. So that Jesus' suffering qualifies him to receive comprehensive authority from God the Father and also to bear our deepest confidence. Think of it this way. Selfishness disqualifies a leader from being trustworthy because you never know how they'll use you. But on the other hand, self-surrender qualifies somebody to be trustworthy. One of the most important questions that you will ever ask in your spiritual life is this. Is Jesus Christ somebody I can trust? That's the question underneath almost all the other questions in the spiritual life. Because if you can trust Jesus as your fundamental authority, if you can even trust him more than you can trust yourself, then the whole of the Christian life will be a matter of trusting him more deeply and more consistently in more spheres of your life. And it's Jesus' self-surrender at the cross that qualified him both to receive the authority from God the Father and also to bear your deepest trust. But now we need to end by making it even more personal. Because remember the thing that should make us squirm earlier? Belshazzar was extreme in his self-centeredness, but he wasn't unique. We're a lot like him. And if Belshazzar is not a, an authority that we can really trust, then if we're like him, why should we even trust ourselves as our final authority in life? Well, and if Belshazzar deserves God's judgment, what about us? We'll go back to Jesus. 
Because when Jesus died, he didn't die simply to demonstrate that he was trustworthy. He died so that people like Belshazzar could be reconciled. Remember, Belshazzar exalted himself and allied himself with evil, and he came under God's just judgment. And we all resemble him to some extent. And therefore, we all deserve God's judgment. But God's pr preference is always to reconcile rather than to judge. And so when Jesus died, here he was, the first perfectly innocent human. But he voluntarily suffered the death that our sin deserves. And he suffered that death so that the guilty people like me could receive amnesty and pardon and forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus died so that enemies, people like Belshazzar, could be reconciled to God. Now, here's the deal, Emmanuel. You can trust somebody who's willing to suffer for you. And you can really trust somebody who's willing to suffer for you even if you don't deserve it. And if that's true, then nobody deserves your trust more than Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus' trustworthiness, and when you see all that Jesus has given for you, even though you don't deserve it, the more that goes deep within you, the more you will want to surrender your life to him. As you see Jesus decentering himself for you, you will want to decenter yourself for him. And that's how the transformation happens. And that's how the Belshazzar within us begins to die. It doesn't happen like that, but it begins, and it grows. And over time, you become more captivated with the beauty and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. And the more you'll want to give yourself away. That's how love works. When you've been loved deeply, you want to give yourself away in love back. And that's the Christian life. As you see the crucifixion and the suffering of Jesus Christ for you and for your redemption, though you do not deserve it, it will call forth a decentering of your own heart. And as you decenter self and recenter Jesus Christ as the deepest authority and the greatest joy of your heart, then the transformation begins. And that's how you and we all will become trustworthy gifts to the people around us. So friends, as we enter into this holy week, fix your eyes upon the suffering king. His suffering... His kingship is not despite his suffering, it's because of his suffering. And watch him and walk with him. And ask him to decenter yourself and center him so that he might become your highest joy. And that will be the beginning of your transformation. Amen? Amen. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.